Now, this is Box to Box with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgeley. Oh, what a goal! For, For Chemist, Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage moving and Absolutely fantastic! Hello and welcome to Box to Box, the show that is everything football. You're with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgeley to run the rule over the past week in the world game. First edition news with Willem van Dender and shortly, and of course, our former ITN journo turned pundit Derek Dyson. He's back from holidays. He'll be joining us later on in the show. Now, last week, we briefly touched on a story in the Sydney Morning Herald where Vince Rigari reported that Football Australia says it will take an open mind into talks on an Asian Super League 12 months after a similar idea pushed by Europe's top clubs was crushed by an avalanche of fan anger. We'll talk to the Asian Games' Paul Williams about how seriously we need to take that story and also dig into some of the other important issues around the current Asian Champions League season. Well, I'm after that with the latest on the Matildas and Socceroos around the club scene. Then with the A-League men's season coming to what will be an exciting conclusion with the three Melbourne clubs fighting for the Premiership and most clubs with a mathematical chance of making the playoffs, one club who won't be there is Perth, whose season has turned into a train wreck. Three years on from the Tony Popovic era where the Glory won the Premiership by two clear games and lost a penalty shootout thriller to Sydney in front of a packed Optus Stadium, the Glorious sacked their coach, Richie Garcia. Interim coach Ruben Zadkovic ripped into players in his squad after Saturday's 6-0 thrashing against Western United. The Daniel Sturridge experiment has failed with just 93 minutes on the park and under Tony Sage set to take an advance on distribution funds from the A-League governing body to help keep the club afloat. They've got plenty of excuses, though, with COVID affecting their season, resulting in a brutal fixture with seven games in 21 days and a ferocious injury toe. So we'll talk to local Perth journalist Blaine Treadgold to get a handle on whether we just write this season off as an outlier or are there deeper issues going on over there in the West? And as we said, we will wrap it up with stoppage time. So an interesting show this week, Edge. I know we want to dig into the Champions League, but I just want to get a sense from Paul whether uh, you know there is fire with the smoke of this Super League story. And uh, it'll be interesting chatting to, to Blaine, who's been one of your uh, guests on Green and Gold Army tours over the journey. Hello, Rob, and hello to all our listeners around Australia and in the far-flung places in the most magic place in the universe, the planet Earth. Uh, we love your company every week on Box to Box. Yes, uh, Blaine, uh, I know him well, and uh, there's really no other person in Perth who will know all the scuttlebutt. He'll know all the uh, the comings and goings and rumours and facts about Perth. And uh, when you, you know that there's some serious issues in Perth when these rumours start to ripple around the east coast of Australia like they're doing at the moment. So uh, looking forward to that discussion in segment four. But what about congratulations to Fulham FC, the Cottagers, who have secured automatic promotion to next season's Premier League. And how about Alexander Mitrovic, who scored 40 goals so far in the championship season. So Fulham, the ultimate yo-yo club, they're back in the Premier League next season. And at the other end of the championship, uh, only because it's Derby County, and in deference to our good mate Dino, um, I'm sorry, Dino, they're relegated after they lost to QPR. That 12-point deduction, Willem, was just too hard for Derby to overcome. It certainly was. Back to Mitrovic, he scored 40 goals with four games to play, so he's already absolutely smashed the 31-goal record previously held by Ivan Tony for a for a championship season, Michael. But can he do it in the Premier League? That's the question for Fulham fans. Uh, he scored just the 24 in 120-odd games at the uh, at the top level, I think I read today. So uh, the question is if he can get his act together and perform a Timu uh, Puki-like uh, put a team of Pookie-like season together and make sure they stay up. But, Michael, I want to ask you, they've removed the cap on transfer fees for contracted players. 
This means clubs outside of the A-League will be able to freely negotiate fees for player transfers, bringing the Australian game closer in line with the global market. Since 2007, the maximum amount that could be paid for the transfer of a contracted player was capped at 50% of the value owed to the player under that deal. So my first question to you, Michael, is who does this benefit? Is it the player whose value can now be sort of freely determined on the market and they can get uh, their full whack for that? Is it the clubs who uh, can now earn what they're entitled to in, in developing a player or is it both? Well, the cap was brought in to redirect funds that were in the old NSL days, Willem, being distributed amongst clubs for transfer fees and putting clubs under pressure to redistribute that money directly back into the players in terms of salaries and support the salary cap situation. So James Johnson, when he was recruited to be Chief Executive Officer of the of Football Australia, he mentioned in his um, in all of his interviews that he thought that the the football community in Australia, by that the Football Australia and uh, professional clubs were losing out big time on revenues associated with transfer fees. So by establishing uh, a transfer market or re-establishing the transfer market and not putting a cap on uh, what players can transfer for between clubs means that uh, the, the value of players now will be open to uh, the market. Uh, and as we know, uh, when you buy a house, Willem, it's just like buying a footballer. It's only worth worth what someone will pay for it. So, you know, oh, in, one on. person's, in one person's eyes, a player may be worth a lot of money. In another person's eyes, it's not worth much at all. So it's going to obviously establish the d- domestic transfer market. And that'll have, obviously, um, a player's value will be set by their previous transactions and that'll help when it comes to valuing a player for the inter- international transfer market. The Victorian government has confirmed the Super Classico between Brazil and Argentina will be played at the MCG on June 11 in the penultimate international window before the World Cup. The sides drew 95000 for a friendly at the same venue five years ago and while the result will have no bearing on World Cup qualification, it is of course still a competitive fixture. Here's Tim Vickery speaking with us on the program just a fortnight ago, at which point he at least certainly seemed pretty unlikely that we'd get to this point. Because there's still this match to be played from the World Cup qualification, Brazil's home game against Argentina. Uh, FIFA insisting that it that it be played and Brazil want to take it to Australia in June. Um, that That's the idea of, of Brazil's FA. Uh, um, given that Argentina are already going to be in Europe to face Italy, I'm not sure Argentina are going to want to schlep all the way over there. So uh, that that's one that still that still has to be defined. So, Rob, that was Tim Vickery there. Um, I've made it clear that I'm a bit of a sceptic about uh, international clubs coming out and playing these friendlies or uh, international sides even coming and playing against uh, club sides, which Michael's clearly not a fan of. But Brazil, Argentina, um, this is probably one that actually does tickle the fancy a little bit, especially considering that it is uh, it is a competitive match. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the key point here. Uh, and uh, uh, Bobo um, was quoted by Dominic Bossi in uh, the Sydney Morning Herald uh, only a couple of days ago uh, saying that uh, that this is is a game where he expects that uh, that players from both sides will be treating it as their their final chance to uh, to get a call up to the world cup i mean brazil um, in dominic's article he, he outlines uh, have uh, called up 50 players over the last 12 months and argentina 58 so there's no way in the world that uh, obviously all of those players that have been called up are going to get a start in the world cup so it suggests that uh, what we're going to see for you know, the first time, and and the first time, obviously outside of the continent of South America, a competitive 
World Cup qualifier match, albeit with no uh, qualification directly on the line, but with the the contest of players uh, playing to compete. So I think this one is going to be a, a good match, and it's it's not that far away. So um, really looking forward to to that. And I know uh, when when you hear your mates and and friends and and some of my brothers in Sydney talking about coming down for that match on June 11, uh, it suggests that that one uh, could be um, different to your classic sort of. Uh, um, um, a match that uh, uh, we see um, come to Australia from time to time, um, Manchester United, Crystal Palace, for example. So. Let's have a look at the Asian Champions League. Melbourne City sit top of their group a third of the way into the group stages, following a one-all draw with Patum United of Thailand and a 3-0 win over United City of the Philippines. Having lost Matthew Leckie and Andrew Naboot to injuries in the first match, City leaned on their depth, didn't they, Edge? Marco Tilio, Stefan Kolokowski and Subasa Endo, uh, a player who we haven't seen much of in the A-League. Uh, and they delivered just as those guys, particularly Tilio and Kolokowski, did in the A-League finals last year. El FC have drawn with John Book and Hong An Jialai of Vietnam to sit third. Uh, John Book atop of that group with Yokohama F. Marinos in uh, second place. So we will chat to Paul Williams about all things Asian football and specifically the Asian Champions League uh, in a little bit. But Michael City's deck, we know it is a feature of theirs, but with no O'Neill, Connor Metcalf, no Lecky and no Berenguer for that second clash. Uh, they've had to dip into it a little bit earlier than they would have liked. Yeah, but they stood up well, didn't they? Uh, the Melbourne City uh, younger players, you know, they have relied on them from time to time in the A-League and they did the job for them in the Asian Champions League. I must admit, Melbourne City's look good uh, this far into the uh, the group, but uh, Sydney SC, they are under pressure and uh, with two draws in their opening two matches, they've got a massive game uh, in the next match to see if they can dial themselves back in to contention in their group. The New South Wales government have announced a $10 million legacy fund will be available to all levels of football following the hosting of the 2023 Women's World Cup. Minister for Sport and Tourism Stuart Ayres encouraged clubs to apply for grants once they become available this year, while funds will also go towards construction of facilities and participation initiatives. Football Australia's Head of Women's Football, Women's World Cup Legacy and Inclusion, Sarah Walsh, has said the funding is a significant milestone in the sports push for 50-50 gender participation. So, Michael, we'll throw back to you here. Uh, firstly, does Sarah Walsh have the longest title in the history of football? Uh, and secondly, uh, what do you make of the announcement? It's a great announcement, and she probably does have the longest title uh, going around at the moment in Australian football, but she's earned it, the former Matilda, and she's doing a fine job in that role of um, developing a, a legacy. And that legacy um, is an important uh, outcome of uh, this you know, global event, this mammoth um, monster event that we're, we're having. Um, so it will be it will be a very important. And uh, I mean, I expect to see some similar announcements like this around the country. And well done to the New South Wales government, who I must say, uh, well and truly have, uh, despite the Victorians uh, getting Brazil and Argentina, um, I do think in terms of the commitments that New South Wales have made to football, um, that government is leading the way in terms of stadium development and um, and obviously um, uh, their support for the Women's World Cup with all the main feature matches that are happening up there. Uh, and my only question about the uh, the big match between Brazil and Argentina is it, it, it is that it's at the MCG and uh, you're miles from the field at the MCG. And I do think uh, football uh, with a big crowd at the MCG is not the greatest uh, 
bang for buck, Rob. After the break, we're going to talk Asian football. We're going to talk the Super League story that came out last week, and we're also going to talk a lot about the Asian Champions League. That's with uh, Paul Williams from the Asian Game website. That's next on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. This is Box to Box. Now, a little over 12 months ago, we were all over the European Super League story, which spectacularly crashed, but seems to bob up every now and then uh, with multiple Hydra heads. So when we saw Vince Regari's article in the Sydney Morning Herald last week, uh, saying that the uh, Football Australia powers that be would take an open mind into talks on an Asian Super League 12 months on, we raised our eyebrows and went to, we are going to the man who covers the Asian game in great detail, the man who does a podcast called The Asian Game and has a website by that very name. And an article that I read that, uh, that our next guest, Paul Williams, wrote where he said, lurking behind the task force announced was something more sinister, a proposal and push for an Asian Super League. Paul, welcome back to the show. Um, Reading what you've written on the subject and what we know from the past 12 months, um, do you feel we have cause for concern? Yeah, I'm not sure if there's too much cause for concern at the moment. From, from what I understand, the proposal was, was put forward by the AFC's um, media rights arm, which is for marketing Asia, and it didn't receive a lot of support from, from senior management within AFC. Um, they decided they would go down the path of creating these task force, of which um, uh, Football Australia is a member of one of those, to at least explore the possibility of, of how they grow and develop the AFC's club competitions. And I think, as I wrote in the piece on, on the Asian Game website, it, it's the right discussion to have. that A Super League would be the wrong outcome. But I also think there's there's a lot of assumptions around what a Super League would be and that, that term Super League, it's a, it's a very loaded term because we think of it as to how the European Super League was going to be set up where it's select few clubs that join a closed shop league and compete every year. And I'm not sure whether that is what is the potential outcome in Asia where it's, you know, it's the same clubs competing every year. It might be the same nation but it still might be the same mechanism that you have to still qualify from um, from your domestic competition. It may just be a little bit more exclusive rather than being open to more nations as the competition currently is. Um, they may restrict that to you know maybe just the top you know eight or ten nations um, within Asia and make it more exclusive that way. But you still have to qualify for your domestic competition. So I think. We're, we're kind of working on a lot of assumptions because there just isn't a lot of detail uh, surrounding this at the moment. And, and from what I can gather, there wasn't even a lot of detail put forward in the proposal itself. So I think it's, it's right to go down this path and explore how we can you know, develop and improve Asian club competitions because I don't think anyone would be of the view that it's reaching, reaching its maximum potential at the moment. So I, I think going down this path of exploring these possibilities is absolutely the right thing. And I think that's what James Johnson said. This is nothing to be afraid of. We have to go into this with an open mind um, and see what comes out of it at the end. But as someone who watches the Asian game closely and international football just as closely, the, the question is begged as an observer, what's the point if we already have the, Asian, the AFC Champions League? Uh, it hmm. sounds pretty much like uh, what you've just described. Exactly. And 
and that was my um, that was my thinking as well when I first uh, when I first heard this news and um, discussing it with a few other people as to if if this proposed super league or whatever you want to call it is going to increase revenues, it can increase distributions back to the club or threefold. So we're told. Why can't the same be achieved with uh, with the, the current format of of the AFC Champions League? So um, that hasn't been answered yet. That would be um, that would be my question as well. If if you're looking to improve the competition, surely you can just you know find ways to improve the the, the current format and improve distributions back to um, back to the clubs as well. I mean, that is at the end of the day essentially what you know a, a Super League would be all about would be increasing revenues, not just to clubs but to you know media rights holders as well. Um, and I'm not sure a, a proposed Super League, and we'll, we'll use that term, but um, it, it, it's not a Super League in, in the same way that Europe's is going to be. It, it, it's essentially going to be what the Asian Champions League was a, a decade ago when, you know, it was, you know, restricted to probably, you know, 10 or 12 nations every year. Um, I don't understand how a decade on that's going to be two or three times more lucrative than it was a decade ago um, um, when that was the, the format. So, but as I said, there, there just isn't enough information known yet to, to form, you know, really um, developed um, understandings of, of what's going to happen and, and, and what the future might look like. Paul, let's have a look at the Asian Champions League as it stands currently. We're two match days in and we've seen some huge results for what perhaps traditionally, with respect, is probably uh, the least successful sort of sub-region of Asia, mm. and that is Southeast Asia. Johor, Darul, Tazima, Malaysia, they've had two wins. Uh, Fiji, Patum of Thailand have had a win and a draw. And Lion City Sailors of Singapore have knocked off Daegu of South Korea. Yeah. And any Melbourne Victory fan will be able to tell you that Daegu have a, a very, very serious side. So would you say the expanded mm. format uh, is already reaping reward for Asia as a whole? I certainly would, yeah. And I know that the expanded format, you know, from 32 to 40 nations has a lot of detractors and I, I know it does make the competition a little bit more clunky in terms of uh, you know only that the top team is guaranteed to go through and then you've got you know uh, three you know best second place teams and you know that can make it awkward rather than you know just the, the top two but for mine the results that we saw this week and the development that we've seen in, in some of the teams in Southeast Asia is exactly why this competition was expanded in the first place it was expanded to include these regions because, you know, the, the potential um, that they can generate in terms of revenue as well is enormous. We you know when you potentially factor in a nation like Indonesia getting involved sometime soon as well. And of course, you know, you know, Malaysia, Vietnam, Thailand, are, are huge markets as well. India, of course, in the West with, with Mumbai city. So I was always a fan of expanding the, the competition and I think it's been proven a success. We have seen, a couple of blowouts last year with Tampanese Rovers of, of Singapore, but across the board, I think that you know the expansion teams, if you want to call them that, the ones that have benefited from this, have actually shown that they can compete at this level. Occasionally, they might you know get beaten heavily, as Lion City did against Daroa, but occasionally they'll you know flip up a surprise as well as they did against Daegu. And as you said, Melbourne Victory knows how serious a club Daegu is. You know they're generally sort of a, a mid-table team, you know fourth or fifth in in the K League. Um, has been their mark the, the last couple of years, and that's nothing to sneeze at as well. That's you know serious level that they're uh, they're playing at. So for Lion City, a club from Singapore, to go and beat them, and, and not just beat them, you know one nil with a a lucky goal, they beat them three nil and convincingly beat them at that as well. 
um, that's an incredible result. And so I think, you know, the, the expanded format of the competition is already showing that the benefits. And Paul, while those Southeast Asian nations are flying at the other end of the uh, spectrum, we've got Guangzhou Evergrande, who we know are in some pretty serious uh financial difficulty from a whole of club uh, perspective, but they've sent a, a team of kids and they've been five nil and eight nil across their first two matches. So what more can you tell us there? The plight of Chinese football at the moment is a pretty disastrous one. And it's embarrassing. The, the performances are perhaps understandable given the, the kids that they've sent across and they have sent youth teams. They did it last year as well. Guangzhou, um, Guangzhou and Shandong have sent youth teams this year in, in Shanghai pulled out they've done that because you know the, the champions league was was going to um cross over with the start of the chinese super league season and the clubs didn't want to risk losing players for the start of the super league because of course when they get back into china they have to quarantine for um you know it, it, it may start out as two weeks but uh, this being china could end up as uh, anything the way things are going over there at the moment when you see the, the stories coming out of shanghai so they decided to send the youth teams, it probably would have been better for everyone involved if they just, you know, withdrawn from the competition completely because they're doing themselves no favours. They are putting a black mark against the name of Chinese football. They're putting a black mark against the name of the AFC Champions League as well when they're sending teams out that are getting smashed 5-0, 7-0, 8-0. It does nothing to favour their reputation and does nothing to favour the reputation of this competition as well. I doubt the AFC are going to to act and um, put any sort of um, penalty on uh, on Chinese football and the CFA uh, or the clubs for uh, for sending weakened squads. Um, I, I doubt that's going to happen, probably just because of, of COVID and, and everything that's happened. And of course, that country is hosting the Asian Cup in just over 12 months' time, so that would not be a good look. But it's a pretty embarrassing look for the competition when you've got, when you've got teams that are just not competitive at all. Um, and sending teams out there to, to are effectively, you know, lambs to the slaughter. And uh, for the Socceroos, uh, our opponent in that uh, June 7 playoff, the United Arab Emirates, uh, their superstar, he, he'd had gone missing a little bit through the campaign, but Omar Abdul Rahman, he's hit a purple patch and displayed just why he's considered the UAE's uh, talisman. He, he put in a fabulous performance for his club, mm. and he looks like he's hitting form just at the wrong time for the Socceroos. Wrong time for the Socceroos, right time for the UAE as far as they're concerned. He's been beset by injuries over the last couple of years and and floated around from, from club to club, not making any impact when he was fit. And it was almost thought that you know his career was almost done and um, he'd sort of uh, you know meekly finish off his, his career. But he's, he's found fitness again. He's come back for Shabab al-Akli. He's working again under Marty Ali, who... It was his coach with you know the under 23s um, at the London Olympics when he first broke through and then into the uh, the national team as well when he really had his purple batch. So perhaps working under him again, he's you know found some found some enjoyment of, of football again and his display the other night for for Shabab Al-Akhli against Al Gharafa was sensational. It was the Omar Abdurrahman of old. The, the question is you know whether his body can can hold up now in the next, what is it, probably six weeks and, until those games are played. Um, he hasn't played for the national team for a long time, but there is now a clamour to get him back involved um, in the team for those matches, given their importance. You know, if you've got a player like Omar Abdurrahman who is who is fit, even though he hasn't featured a lot throughout this campaign, if you've got a player with that much talent at your disposal, 
Gigi a brave coach if you leave him out of uh, leave him out of the squad at the very least. Um, whether they rush him back into the eleven, I'm not so sure. Um, but certainly, I imagine he's going to be in the squad, and um, whether he's in the eleven or whether he's coming off the bench, he presents a big danger to the Socceroos. So, Paul, before we let you go, um, we have to ask you the question: uh, based on your observations of both squads and the form that they're in, uh, uh, which uh, of the two do you think uh, goes into this match favourite uh, to to take on Peru to get to the World Cup? I suspect Australia will go in as favourites just because of the form throughout qualifying um you know we we bemoan australia's form throughout qualifying but um we, we were still significantly a step above what the uae were, were able to produce um especially when you look at you know the, the points gained between the two teams where australia was significantly ahead in that regard so i think australia will go into this match as favorites but i think in a one-off match that really counts for little we saw what the uae was able to do against South Korea, and of course, you know, South Korea had already qualified, so you know they perhaps weren't as desperate as, as Australia will be, but they are still a significant opponent to play against, especially when they've got Son Hong Min in the, the starting lineup. And you know they only had 20 odd percent of possession, but they were able to withstand that pressure and then catch them on the break. And they've got some some dangerous players. I'll give you a name to look out for. Harib Abdullah is a 19 year old kid who's bursting onto the scene in, in Emirati football. He scored in that game for Shabab Al-Akli the other night as well. He scored the winner against Korea, um, and he's he's a serious baller, as it's been put to me. So keep an eye out for him. He's going to be a star for the UAE, and I suspect he'll be one to watch out for when those uh, when those matches roll around. But I suspect Australia going favourites. As for the match itself, I still think it's a toss of a coin as to which way it goes. feels like that. Um, it's, uh, it's all to play for uh, ahead of... Uh the 7th of June over there in Qatar. Paul, thanks again for joining us. Really appreciate your time and your expertise. Paul Williams, the Asian Game. Get on to the Asian Game uh, podcast. It's a, it's an excellent podcast with some absolute experts. Uh, if you want to know what's going on in the uh, the Asian Champions League and Asian football in general, there's no better place to uh, to get your uh, information from. So, Paul, uh, until next time, mate, uh, enjoy the uh, the rest of the Champions League and, uh, and hopefully um, some good results uh, in Qatar before the real... Uh, competition kicks off later in the year at the World Cup. Cheers, guys. Appreciate it. No worries. Paul Williams from the Asian Game. Okay, stick around. Willem's back with uh, the latest on the Socceroos and Matilda's next on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is Box to Box. Great chat with Paul Williams from The Asian Game. If you haven't checked it out already, get onto their podcast. Just type The Asian Game into your podcast catcher or The Asian Game website. Some great articles about the Champions League. And if you just want to bring yourself up to speed as the competition comes to a sharp end, there's uh, one thing's for sure that uh, Paul Williams and his team will do that for you. Uh, before we get into Matildas and Socceroos with Willem, Mother's Day is only a couple of weeks away. Did you know that? Willem, have you already been out shopping? Or are you going to leave it till the last minute? I didn't know that. No, I'm behind the, I'm behind the curve. Rob, so I'll be straight off to Chemist Warehouse as soon as we stop recording. Oh, you better be, mate, because mum is always there for you. So this Mother's Day, give her a special fragrance at a special price. Like Calvin Klein Euphoria for women, 100 mils, 49.99. Roberto Cavalli for women, 75 mils, 49.99. 
Issey Miyake for women, 100 mils, $69.99. And Mark Jacobs, Daisy, 100 mils, $79.99. And of course, Longcom Tresser, 100 mils, $109.99. Now, Edge, um, it's a controversial uh, theory. I know I'm expected to buy my wife, Sandra, a Mother's Day gift, even though she's not my mother. Uh, does the same apply in your household with uh, the lovely Philippa? Yeah, Mother's Day is important, but uh, it's Margaret uh, is my mum, and uh, she normally gets a, a gift from uh, Chemist Warehouse. So, uh, thanks for blowing my cover, Rob. <laughs> I'm sure you will, mate. I say to my dear departed mum who left this world a few years ago. She always was given lots of treats on on Mother's Day. So, look after your mum this Mother's Day, Chemist Warehouse, where the great savings are every single day. Let's jump into Socceroos and Matilda Central for the Green and Gold Army. Packages are on sale now for the Socceroos Playoff Tour in June, which features 11 nights in Doha and three of the highest quality international fixtures you could imagine. Between cheering the Socceroos to one of those final places in Qatar, there's a guided tour of Souk Waqif and trips to the Banana Island Resort and Museum of Islamic Art. You've been mad to miss, so book now at gjtravel.com.au. Let's have a look at how our Matildas fared across the past week. Sam Kerr, Hayley Rasso and Alana Kennedy could all feature in the Women's FA Cup final on May 15 after Chelsea and Man City won their semi-finals. Kerr played 72 minutes for the Blues in their 2-0 win over Arsenal, for whom Steph Catley played the full 90 minutes. So Sam Kerr returns to the stage that she, of course, lit up as Chelsea won that FA Cup last season. Kennedy played the full 90 and Rasso came off the bench for City as they defeated West Ham 4-1, progressing at the expense of Mackenzie Arnold and Tamika Yellop. To Denmark, Fortuna Hjoring, we know we've got our trio of Aussies there and they they remain a really good chance for silverware in the Cavenda Liga. Uh, Angela Beard scored twice and India Page Riley added another in their 4-1 win over Bronby this week. And good luck to Ellie Carpenter, the last remaining Aussie in the Women's Champions League. Leon played their semi-final first leg against PSG in the early hours of Monday morning. And Michael, haven't PSG closed the gap on what was for uh, so long a bit of an autocracy in French football, uh, particularly French women's football uh, held by Leon? They're, they're chasing tail in the... Uh, they're not too far away in the league and they uh, they are certainly making it a two-horse race and they'll meet in the Champions League. Yes, for so long, Lyon has been, Olympic Lyon has just been the um, world's best and um, most significant and impressive women's football club. But PSG have been closing their gap every season and, um, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if they get over the top of Lyon in um, the... Uh, Women's League in France, not to mention the uh, Champions League semi-final as well. Another week, another old firm derby. And I'll admit, I was starting to think, geez, these are maybe a little bit too frequent. You probably want them to be that real premium product. But I watched this one in the Scottish uh, the Scottish Cup semi-final. And I have to say, I thought it was the best of the lot. Uh, Celtic went down 2-1 to Rangers. So that is the first slip up in a little bit for Ange Postacoglu. Tom Rogic didn't have much of an impact either. But uh, I thought Celtic were well and truly sort of outworked and outmuscled by Rangers. And uh, Rangers probably deserved uh, deserved their victory in the end. They will meet uh, Hearts, where Nathaniel Atkinson played a full match in their semi-final win over the Hibs. So it was the Glasgow derby and the Edinburgh derby in the two semi-finals. Uh, and really promising news as well was that Camelon Cameron Devlin came off the bench uh, to make his return from injury in the dying stage. So the Scottish Cup final will be on May 21. Let's have a chat about Perth Glory's Andy Keogh before we bring in Blaine Treadgold uh, for an extended chat on the glory. He's today announced, that's Andy, not Blaine, that he'll retire from the game at the end of the season, having scored 64 goals across three stints with the club. So, Michael, he's third all-time for the glory across the NSL and A-League. Can you give me the top two for goals scored? That would be Bobby Despotowski, uh, my great mate from Heidelberg Day. 
Days and, of course, uh, Frogger Murray, uh, who is uh, really uh, should be always remembered as uh, one of the all-time greats in Australian football. Spot on. Uh, and word that Keo is going to stay around in the club, maybe in recruitment. Also word that he might be looking to buy into the club in some capacity. So we'll ask Blaine about that in a moment. Rob, we uh, dug into the A-League men's competition last week and we've had another week of fixtures since. And it's been a good one for Western United. They remain firmly in the premiership race uh, after wins over Perth and MacArthur. A 6-0 hammering of the glory was followed by a hard-fought 2-0 win over the Bulls. So they are now just two points behind Melbourne City and they have a game in hand. They have tough trips to round out the season to the Central Coast, Newcastle and Adelaide. But I suppose one of the uh, the quiet storylines of this campaign, Rob, has been the redemption of John Aloisi as an A-League manager. Oh, absolutely. And with one, without wanting to sound Melbourne-centric, uh, uh, the Melbourne teams have just really rebounded this year, haven't they? It's It's been amazing. I mean, the fact that uh, the Melbourne victory under Tony Popovich have, have done amazing things. They've got two games in hand behind City, so they could still win the Premiership if things go their way. But as you said... Uh, John Aloisi with Western United. He's an icon of football in this country after that amazing night at, at Homebush in, in 2005 and his subsequent efforts at the World Cup. Of course, his entire career was uh, um, a, a fantastic one. And, and when we look back at those times where the likes of, of Johnny Aloisi and, and other players of his era were playing in the top flights around the world, I think we just took it for granted. So it's great to see him doing doing so well. So yeah, Western United, uh, it's, it's a great story. Uh, but uh, I guess guess on the other side of things, I know we're going to talk Perth Glory after the break, but but some of the Sydney sides with MacArthur just dropping the ball at the wrong end of the Sydney the the, the uh, season. Uh, Western Sydney still a basket case, uh, the, despite uh, Carl Robinson leaving, um, and and Sydney FC will you know you give them. Uh, a pass for a bad season um, when they they very rarely have them, but uh, it's uh, it's certainly all about the Melbourne clubs this year, isn't it? It is, and I think there was a point uh, during a live ladder there where the five New South Wales sides occupied the five bottom sides on the ladder. Season's also over for the Jets; they lost to the Victory and Western Sydney this week. Uh, as we said, though, Rob, they do still have a little bit of damage to do if they want it with two F three derbies to come. So they can certainly stymie the progress of the Mariners. Michael, we'll throw to you now with a bit of news on the young Matildas who are back in action under Leah Blaney. Yes, absolutely. The official draw for the FIFA Under-20 Women's World Cup will take place on the 5th of May, just around the corner. And Costa Rica have announced their draw assistance. And it's always a bit of a interesting uh, little uh, moment in hosting World Cup events uh, when countries sort of anoint their biggest legends. On the female side, Shirley Cruz, don't know too much about her, but on the male side, this name will uh, put the shutter down, Rob, Paolo Wanchop, he's going to be there as a draw assistant for that star-studded event. And um, we just might make note of young Matilda's coach, Leah Blaney. She'll become the very first female to lead an Australian team to a FIFA World Cup. Congratulations, Leah. And not before time, I would say, the 35-year-old Blaney was vice-captain of the young Matildas when they last qualified for the FIFA World Cup way back in 2006, and that was in Russia. So uh, that's a little bit of information on the young Matildas. I've got one for Rob. When you say Sam Allardyce, Rob, what comes to mind when you say Sam Allardyce? Relegation battle. Is that the? That's the right. He is the master of the saving the relegation uh, destined teams in the Premier League. He was the escapologist of the greatest uh, performance. And our own Michael Valkanis is just starting to um, get a little bit of a reputation on that front too. Remember, he stepped in 
from his role as assistant in February to take on uh, KAS Uben in the Belgian Pro League. They would, you know, they'd lost ten in a row and were sitting bottom of the ladder. Well, the former Melbourne City head coach and Adelaide United captain has achieved that mission um, when Eupen avoided relegation from the top flight um, uh, last weekend. So congratulations, Michael Valkanis. Move over, Big Sam. Um, relegation uh, survivor, <laughs> Michael Valkanis. I just wonder whether Tim Cahill, who's on Eupen's uh, board, whether he'll anoint him as the coach for next season. Okay, we'll watch Timmy. Uh, great, great story there. Uh, a, um, a Sam Allardyce protege. Uh, always good to hear a, a nice... Uh, club uh, story uh, saved from relegation anywhere in the world. I'm just waiting for for Big Sam to be appointed uh, as interim coach at Burnley. It sort of uh, makes sense that, uh, that that would happen. I haven't seen that one reported just yet. Okay, um, boys, we will talk to... Lane at Treadgold next from Perth. Uh, Edge, he's been on a few of your uh, your Green and Gold Army tours, but he's also an expert on football over there in Perth with Sport 91.3 FM uh, and has some pretty strong opinions on what's going on over there as the, their season has imploded. So stick around. Blaine Treadgold on Perth Glory next on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you the Chemist Warehouse, home of real brands and real savings, and Storage King, the kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is Box to Box, and as we said off the top of the show, a little over three years ago, everything was good in Perth football. Tony Popovich was the coach. They'd just won their first ever premiership. Heartbreaking loss to Sydney FC in a penalty shootout. 56,000 people at Optus Stadium, and the future looked rosy, but... Along came COVID and the guts fell out of uh, sport around the world. But if there was a team that suffered more in Australian sport than Perth Glory, I don't know who they were. To join us to discuss uh, this current season, what's happened and where to from here is broadcaster from Perth's sports station, 91.3 FM, Blaine Treadgold. Welcome to the show, Blaine. Yeah, g'day, boys. Thanks for having me on. Not at all, mate. So as I've described it three years ago, it, it, it all looked rosy, didn't it? And uh, who would have thought that uh, uh, three seasons on, uh, things would just be as dire as they are? Yeah, it seems like a, uh, a lifetime ago now, doesn't it? There's been so much uh, water under the bridges, that, as they say. And uh, yeah, it just seems to have fallen to bits. Uh, I guess there was... Uh, the clause in Tony Popovich's contract said that he could uh, leave as he liked, and he he did following the season after our premiership season. We did make that grand final in, in 2019, but uh, I guess following his departure, it, it kind of fell apart a little bit. We lost some big, big names that we were prized, re- you know, recruits at the time. Jason Davidson, Chris Economides, uh, uh, D'Agostino, Brimmer, these kind of guys, and... Uh, we know that uh, once Tony Popovich came back, he's uh, held very highly uh, by the players. They wanted to go and play for him again. And uh, funnily enough, a lot of them ended up over at Melbourne Victory. And that's where we see ourselves finishing that season in in sixth and then and then in ninth. And this season has certainly just been an absolute disaster uh, following on from that. Blaine, it's Edge here. We go way back and I know there is no other person in Perth who will have his ear to the ground to know what's going on at the glory. Uh, sometimes things happen in Perth and they don't really, the ripple effect doesn't really reach the eastern states. But uh, of recent weeks, there's been a flurry of sort of information out of um, the club, which is... Um, got everybody in the sport really concerned with what's going on over there. Uh, the first thing that there's three sort of items I want to talk to you about. The first thing is just the surround, the circumstances surrounding the sackings of Richard Garcia and Steve McGarry seem to be very unpleasant. If two blokes 
should have been cut a little bit of slack about coaching a team in the A-League. It should have been those two, considering what Perth went through on the road during the COVID period. I mean, most Perth Glory fans would have been pretty shocked at that sacking, wouldn't they? I think so. Um, despite the results not being where the club wanted to be, as you suggest, I think there should have been a little bit of slack there. Um, they were they were the two guys who were holding together, especially when we had so many young players coming in and possibly being away from home for an extended period for some of the first time in their life. So they were certainly playing more than, I guess, a just a coach or a manager role. They're also playing a little bit of a, a possibly a dad or a big brother role as well as the other senior players. So times certainly were different. I think three lots of isolation some of the guys went through. So we know that COVID can certainly play a bit of a part in your recovery. And I mean, some guys are taking up to a month to get back up to speed. So I'm not sure we uh, we were ever given a chance in that in that regard as far as getting back up to speed as some of the other clubs. And that's not to say that some of the other clubs haven't done it. Um, it's uh, difficult as well. I mean, we, we look at the Wellington Phoenix, who I think played their first game on the weekend for uh, at home in 18 months or, or whatever it might be. But uh, in terms of the stop-start motion and the disruptions, I certainly think that Perth uh, certainly got their fair share. And Terry McFlynn, who was football manager at the club, um, seems to have resigned in a little bit of a silent protest over the way his colleagues were treated. Uh, McFlynn has a, a fine reputation in the sport. Obviously, his career as a player with Sydney FC is um, well documented, but his off-field uh, work at Sydney FC and now at Perth has been highly respected. I mean, that is a big blow to the club losing McFlynn, I would assume. Yeah, this uh, this is where it starts to get a little bit murky because we're hearing that um, McFlynn, uh, Terry McFlynn decided to stay loyal to Richard Garcia. So when uh, Richard Garcia and Steve McGarry got shown the door, he decided that uh, he didn't want to. Uh, work under, uh, I guess, anyone else there at the club, and and that's his prerogative too. He decided that he'd be, be his services would be uh, better suited elsewhere, so he made that decision. Now, uh, there's a little bit of talk um, and a little bit of rumor and innuendo that things possibly aren't right within the Perth Glory camp at the moment. That there could be a bit of a, a disagreement or a clashing of personalities happening at the moment. That has not been, however. Um, I guess as uh, you know, um, uh, verified. Uh, but there is those whispers, and sometimes we know in football when these whispers start to get out and about and in the public. Uh, sometimes where there's smoke, there's fire. So um, yeah, it's a little bit to know what happens behind the scenes, but uh, that's the decision that uh, Terry McFlynn made. And uh, some of those Chinese whispers are hitting the East Coast, Blaine. One of them is that Andy Keogh, who um, surprisingly enough today has confirmed his retirement from football, is going to be moving into. Uh, an off-field role with the club. And in fact, his family are taking some equity in the club. What can you tell us about that news and um, and how true or untrue it is? Yeah, this has been uh, sifting around for a while that there's been um, a potential for a possibly silent partner or silent investor uh, alongside Tony Sage, who... I think has been pretty honest in coming out and saying, look, that he can't do this on his own anymore. Uh, I think the figure that he's thrown up uh, from time to time is about $40 million that he's poured into the club. Now those, I think it's fair to say that that's uh, 
is going to run out sooner or later because we know that uh, you don't really get into football clubs to make money. You, you're virtually going to leak it. So there certainly needs to be some uh, some assistance come on board. And uh, it has been, I guess, um, asked over the last few days. I think Simon Hill on his program was asking Tony Pinata about that. And he said that he's heard whispers. It's since come out today, I think, um, uh, in FTBL. Um, uh, it's been released that it is, in fact, Kenny Keogh, who is the brother of Andy Keogh, has, uh, in fact, um, it's thought that he's bought a stake or, or some kind of investment in the club. So, I mean, that'll be welcome, um, the money. But I think many of us think that the money is one thing, but I think the mismanagement and other areas of the club is where the problems really lie. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to see which direction this starts to go in uh, following uh, following the end of this season. Well, that's my next question, Blaine. I mean, you've you've been close to the the club since its uh, beginning. Uh, you've seen owners come and go. Tony Sage, um, you know, there was um, some great images when Perth won the title, and Tony Sage's um, you know emotion overflowing on the field. I, I mean, he has sunk an enormous amount of his own coin into the club. But it seems to me that um, from the east coast, anyway, looking in that the fans and the club stakeholders and Tony Sage are quite a way apart in terms of their relationship at the moment. What is the state of play with Tony Sage, uh, his relationship with the fans, and more broadly, is his um, leadership impacting on the club's um, um, stability? Yeah, I'd have to say it is in reply to to your uh, your last question there. there's uh, this, this relationship between Tony Sage and the and uh, I won't say all the fans, but many of the fans has, has been fractured for a while. And this goes back with, with a few, um, you know, things and bits and pieces over history. Of course, there there has been a little bit of form of Tony Sage coming out and quite um, being quite outspoken uh, to the media and uh, possibly in areas that we'd like to see a little bit more uh, possible discretion, uh, if we can put it like that. We've, uh, we've also seen a salary cap saga with... We've, we've seen, um, you know, multiple times threatening to get rid of the club. We've saw, obviously, the the issue where this club was almost sold to a, a convicted uh, criminal in, in that cryptocurrency kind of saga. So there's a little bit of form there. Uh, and I'm not sure it's sustainable just to keep throwing money at some of these problems uh, as we've done uh, as a club in the past. It really needs a... a um, a full review from from top to bottom and in between and upside down and in as many ways as we possibly can because um, many fans remember the good old days of the NSL and how we were so um, popular and and successful and probably paved the way for what became the A League later on and those days are long gone now um, the club is 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 nowhere near what that was it hardly reflects the, the times that we went through there at the moment so we've had plenty of um, of times of uh, you know mediocrity and uh, and saga after saga and and stresses across the club and unfortunately the the common denominator seems to be under Tony Sage's tenure. Blaine, just a final couple from me. Daniel Sturridge on the pitch was obviously by beware. We all know about his history with injury, but it has unfortunately not hit any sort of heights whatsoever. How demoralising has that been uh, for the Perth fans on the street? And what sort of impact would that have had uh, on the squad? Because by all reports, he's been a good fella and a good professional as well. He's worked hard, but it just hasn't worked uh, physically as it has not at many other clubs around the world. So uh, how how demoralising has that been for the Perth Glory fan base? Yeah, well, it certainly hasn't worked. Um, I don't think it's worked in many in many ways at all. 
Uh, and there's a little bit of disappointment over here considering what what was paid for Daniel Sturridge to, to come to Perth and be involved in the club. Considering we haven't seen him it is disappointing, but considering we, we we don't really see him around the club, we don't see him getting out and, and really... Um, I guess, utilising the name that is Daniel Sturridge to promote the club and to get people involved. So that's disappointing within its own. But I, I, I go back to the previous, uh, I guess, point and say we know about his injury history and we wonder whether due diligence was done in signing uh, Daniel Sturridge or whether we saw uh, the big flashing lights that in his name of coming to out to the Perth glory. So there's still questions to be asked about how that all went down and whether due diligence was in fact done. And finally, Ruben Zadkovic has taken over from Richard Garcia. Hasn't had a lot to work with, but it uh, it hasn't gone too well either. And he had a bit of a crack at the players in the press, which was an interesting take from a, a young manager in a uh, in a relatively new position. So can you see uh, a future where he retains the job and the club can reload and reset and sort of rebuild that squad over uh, the offseason and go again next season? Or do you reckon his cards are probably already marked given just how grim the situation is presently? Oh, I think you could pretty much lock him in for the job. Uh, considering some of those comments after the game against Western United. They were scathing comments, weren't they? Um, and having a go and, and pointing out some, even mentioning names, which is not something that we see in uh, in press conferences too much these days. It's very much kept behind closed doors in terms of giving the players a bit of a schlacking after a disappointing performance. Uh, we know what he can do at youth level. We've seen him perform very, very well as the coach of the NPL side over here for Perth Glory. It's going to be interesting to see how he moves forward into that senior role. Uh, if he's given the support, I can't see why not. And it's uh, if he's given the, I guess, the, the keys to be able to recruit as he wants, um, then we certainly can't do any worse than, we've do- than we're doing at the moment. Well, it'll certainly be entertainment value, uh, judging by that press conference. If you didn't see it, jump online. Uh, it's, it's sitting there. He, uh, he doesn't miss, does he, Blaine? And, uh, you know, I guess uh, we complain when we get uh, um, sort of uh, the, t- the watered-down version of press conferences, comments after games in all sports. Uh, so if uh, if Ruben's going to speak like that in press conferences, man, at least uh, people will be watching both the Perth games a little more closely uh, in the future. Hey, Blaine, thanks for joining us. Uh, we uh, I hope that uh, Perth bounce back. Obviously, uh, you know, no, no team has been more affected by COVID in these last couple of years in the A-League than uh, than Glory have. Uh, and, uh, you know, with uh, the amount of injuries that the club has had and uh, and a bunch of other things going on, uh, we uh, we know that uh, that's the only way is up. Hopefully, uh, with the move to Fremantle and, uh, and better facilities, uh, uh, etc., that, um, that there, there's more good news to come out of the West. So, We'll, uh, we'll have to have you back on the show again and, and talk about all that soon. Thanks, boys. Appreciate the opportunity. Not at all, Blaine. Tread Gold from 91.3, the FM sports station over there in Perth. Okay, stick around. Derek is back from his little break. We're going to talk uh, everything else that we haven't gotten through in stoppage time next on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. This is Box to Box. It's stoppage time. Plenty of time to get through all the stuff we haven't spoken about so far. And it's a big welcome back to our mate Derek, who's had a, a little Easter break. Uh, how are you, Derek? Very well, thanks, gents. It's been, uh, been a really good break. And of course, I've managed to miss talking about all of Arsenal's defeats and I'm now back in time with Arsenal back in the back in the black again. Yeah, good timing. Um, and it sounds like you picked up a little bit of a uh, a sniffle from the uh, from the, the the cold country up in there in northeast Victoria. You know what happens when yeah. you stop working, Rob? You just you just get ill straight away and that's what's happened again unfortunately. Oh, well, and how about Rob Gilbert's form, Derek? You mentioned 
Um, Arsenal's 4-2 win at Stamford Bridge over Chelsea. Uh, a great derby win. Uh, Arsenal were unfavoured in that match. They were definitely the underdogs. And Rob just passes over it. I was Doesn't even acknowledge it. Something. No, I, 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 I was. Um, I think uh, you two would have to acknowledge. I'm very gracious over the past week or so, um, not making comment on on Arsenal's uh, missed opportunity on the weekend when uh, Tottenham uh, did the right thing by you and lost, and then you weren't able to get the job done afterwards. So no, hats off. You're an inconsistent side. Uh, you know, battlers on the way back. Well done. It's certainly frustrating, uh, Edge. I mean, I, you just had a funny feeling about this fixture. We've we've actually won this fixture a couple of times at the bridge and in similar fashion in a bit of a goal fest. But uh, you know, it was it was a great great win there for Arsenal, and it just puts us back in the frame again. Uh, we're on the same number of points as Tottenham. They've got a vastly superior goal difference. We're never going to catch them. On that, we've of course got the derby on the penultimate game of the season. It will be interesting to see whether we're still in contention uh, by the time we get round to that game. But it, would, it could be interesting. But I suppose the frustration here is that Eddie Nketiah has scored two goals for Arsenal, and he's out of contract at the end of the season, as is Lacazette. Uh, Edge, I know that you and I have spoken about Aubameyang a few times and the merits of letting him and his goals go, but. You know, Arsenal have really stuffed this up, haven't they? In terms of, you know, they're going to have no strikers by the time they go into the next window and they're going to have to work bloody hard to make sure they've got some for next season. I think we we were beating up on Newcastle United early in the season and you'd have to say since the change of ownership, um, the January transfer window and the change of coach, they have been fabulous, haven't they? And they're up to 11th on the table now and 40 points and 40 points normally gets you saved from relegation. So you'd have to say Newcastle United, uh, look out for what shape they'll take next year with the power of um, the Saudi Arabian ownership behind them. Who knows uh, what they're capable of in years to come? Yeah, it's been a, it's been an enormous turnaround. I remember we were speaking to Garby a few months ago now, and I made a comment about Newcastle being already down. It shows how much I know as our sort of de facto European expert on this show because I got that completely wrong and I think Garby uh, agreed as I disagreed with me and said look let's wait to see what happens after Christmas and as you said Eddie Howe has got to be credited he's definitely we we all knew this team would be better coached than it was being under Steve Bruce I think of Steve Bruce played a very limited style of football that was designed to sort of swamp um, other teams and to limit the play but Eddie Howe's got them playing really good football I, I would say though what he's managed to do is it's not just it's not just the signings that they brought in uh, clearly Gimaresh has, has brought goals and lots of quality since his move from from Leon. and of course Wood up front hasn't quite caught fire excuse the pun but uh, he's been a, a big unit up there I think he always looks dangerous um, and he's a handful for defenders but it's the way that he's got the best out of the existing squad too you know uh, Joel Linton looks like a different player all of a sudden there's Alan Sam Maximan look great uh, in that in that uh, 1-0 win uh, over Palace so it isn't just it isn't just the the new money that comes in but it'll obviously just be fascinating to see where Newcastle go this summer they're going to want to continue to refresh and revamp that squad they've got quite a few defenders 
I reckon they'll probably be looking for some new strikers and even more attacking options and look a lovely goal there for Almer on another player that was already in the squad, his first goal for over a year. And it was, isn't it beautiful when a goal just goes right into the top corner, like literally as close to the corner of the goal as possible. It was a, it's a thing that we all dream of. And on 40 points, I think, you know, Newcastle are almost, you know, they are definitely safe. In fact, um, is really this year that now I think there is only two teams that will go, uh, that they're in uh, a sort of a, tussle uh, to go down now we'll, we'll say that Norwich are down Watford are, are, are dead duck so it's Everton who are four points clear of Burnley with seven games to go now Everton nicked a, a draw against uh, Leicester um, on paper doesn't you know they would have liked to have won it but I think grabbing a goal in injury time particularly after all the misses that Richarlison did and eventually managed to kind of scuff one home that could be an ama- a big draw for, for for Frank Lampard's men. Um, but looking back up to the top of the table, you touched on it before. Uh, City, as you said, Rob, yeah, they've, they've gone back above Liverpool. Uh, you know, Brighton couldn't complete that hat-trick. You know, they've scouts Arsenal and then they scouts uh, Tottenham. But I think Manchester City are, are a different proposition. First two goals took huge deflections. Uh, on another day, those goals might, have not, uh, might, might not have gone in. But I think what's scary for the Premier League uh, edge is that, you know, City are now very much in the driving seat when it comes to Erling Braut Haaland. And can you just, what you know, what is he going to do to this team when he comes in or if he comes in? Absolutely amazing. And the Daily Mail's reporting that Haaland has agreed to a deal with Manchester City that will make him the highest paid player in the Premier League at £500,000 per week. Just get your head around that. You know, if Haaland does come to the Premier League edge, uh, you know, he will likely be a golden boot uh, contender. I imagine he'll probably get a few of them if he makes it to these shores. So the guys who are in contention for the Premier League golden boot this year should try and fill their boots, so to speak, and try and get one because they might not get one for a while. Who's who's in contention this year? I've got one key question for Rob on this, is that uh, Son Hung Ming, who's scored six goals in his last 260 minutes on the pitch, He's just closing the gap on Mo Salah. Um, Mo Salah went eight weeks without a goal um, recently. He got a goal, didn't he? Uh, uh, two goals, in fact, uh, two, two, a match ago. But um, I'm just wondering whether Rob thinks Sun Hung Min uh, has got it in him to overtake Salah at the top of that table. Um, it would be a remarkable achievement for an Asian footballer to do that. Um, that's the reason I bring it up. I think that is quite an exciting prospect and uh, Song has been in some form. He has to be probably up there with uh, Tim Cale as the most impactful uh, Premier League Asian footballer of all time. Well, every time he gets the ball, he seems dangerous, doesn't he? He's one of those players that uh, he's in a, a purple patch of form. And uh, I, I guess the advantage he has over Mo Salah, and, he, and he's got five goals uh, uh, to rein in on Salah, is the fact that he has fewer uh, players for his club that are scoring goals, Harry Kane being the obvious other one. But uh, but Mo Salah has uh, the likes of Diogo Jota, Sadio Mane, and, uh, and Roberto Firmino when he comes off the bench uh, scoring goals as well. So, uh, you know, not out of the question. Um, only five goals, but it, but but the point you make, I take edge that if a, um, an Asian player from from South Korea uh, managed to top the goal scoring charts uh, in the Premier League, that'd be uh, a real red letter day for Asian football. 
I've got a stat, gents, uh, on the subject of goal scoring, and it will neatly back into our Arsenal conversation. There is an Australian theme. Uh, Sacco, who scored a penalty in that game against Chelsea, as well as Smith Rowe, are now in double figures for the season for Arsenal. And this is only the third time it has had two players, 21 or under, who have scored uh, double figures in a Premier League season. So it's only been done two more times. I'll give you one of them, uh, Ronaldo and uh, Rooney in 06-07. But there is one more and there is a strong Australian connection. Got any ideas? Have to be Harry Kuehl, wouldn't it? Mark Verduck. Yes. Yes, Harry Kuehl and Michael Bridges. Uh, obviously, another Australian connection there. Leeds United in the 99-2000 season. So, um, the rare club that uh, Bakayo Saka and Emil Smith-Rowe join. And uh, again, the uh, the hope with Arsenal is in the youth. Where there isn't hope is Manchester United. I certainly wouldn't want to be a Manchester United fan at the moment. Uh, Ralph Ranić calling the defeat to Liverpool a humiliating. And it's not just been this game. I mean, I think um, Liverpool have handed uh, Manchester United their backsides a few times now over the past two to three years. Ranić says that Man United will not repeat Liverpool's 30-year title wait. Uh, Ed, can you see any signs that he's right there? <laughs> I've had a bit of a giggle. Uh, no, I don't actually. Do you? No. I mean, look, Ten Hag is, uh, you know, I think... I don't think anyone really knows if this, okay, they've gone out on, they've got someone on CV, but obviously it's someone that is used to working with, within a very set structure, uh, everyone in place above him, whether it's Edwin van der Sar running, running football, the football side of things. He's got a bunch of coaches there that, that, that work for him. He's coming into Manchester United and he's going to have nothing in place. And I think that's the problem. And if you look at Manchester City and Man- and Liverpool, and what, to a degree, Arsenal have, are trying to do in terms of having a football structure. And by that, we mean a coach uh, that's, that's instilling a, uh, a philosophy uh, and then a director of football and other infrastructure around signings and a vision for the club. Manchester United haven't had that. They've been playing championship manager football, signing Ronaldo, albeit obviously he got his hat-trick at the weekend, and we'll talk about a sad story with Ronaldo in a second. But, uh, you know, it's been schizophrenic at times, and they're struggling. They've still got this mindset that you, you have this kind of legacy manager who interferes or manages every level of the club, and that's not the way football is anymore. So I think Ten Hag is an interesting appointment, He's got an enormous challenge on his hands. I think he's got a lot of deadwood to get out of the squad. I think he's got some very high-profile players that don't put the shifts in that Mo Salah or Mane or Kevin De Bruyne or Bernardo Silva, whoever you want to name, all fantastic players, but all work very hard within a system. Um, but uh, yeah, I, 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 I think 30 years, it could, could be. I, I, I don't see why you know there's nothing there for me that says that they're going to at the moment and yeah uh, it's good good news for Arsenal and Spurs and Chelsea and a few other teams that you know want to sort of stay in the mix for European top European football so you know long may it Derek, continue. you know just to to add to your comments um they're sixth on the table they're 20 23 points uh, behind Manchester City they've played one more game um if you talk to any uh, Manchester United fan, they've had a horrible season 
Um, there seems to be no vibe, spark, gravitas. There's no electricity around their players. So for me, there's one simple question, uh, and it, it gets back to the football structure. Who do they keep at the end of this season and who do they let go and who do they recruit? And the longer you wait to put in a structure around someone, uh, the more you're behind the eight ball on those key decisions. And do they, um, you know, they're, they're not the financial powerhouse they were previously in terms of going into the market and buying the best plays in the world. So they need to be very crafty about it. And um, I, I don't think, you know, who, who am I to, you know, proffer this opinion, but um, just in terms of what we're seeing on the field and the information we read in the press, I don't think they're anywhere close to being where they need to be with a structure to be able to, you know, hit the market and um, secure the type of players they need to um, to um, put that club back at the top of the pile. One sad note that we should mention about United, of course, is I suppose everyone on Box to Box would we feel a lot of sympathy for Cristiano Ronaldo. I'm sure we've all um, seen the news about him and his his little boy who who died. It's a, a tragedy, obviously. Uh, a great mark of respect by both sets of fans at the game at Anfield. It was pretty classy from the Liverpool fans, actually. I, I wouldn't have expected something like that, given the cut and thrust of that rivalry and the nature of the player in question. Uh, I think it's, uh, yeah, I don't think, I think it's, uh, it was a great tribute. And, and hopefully, you know, we can talk for days about whether Cristiano should even be playing in this Manchester United team. But let's hope that um, once he's actually had that time to to spend with his family, he might get back on the horse before the end of the season. And then we will see uh, whether he comes back uh, for United next season. Yeah, it was a lovely tribute at, at Anfield, wasn't it? And uh, and unfortunately, and and, um, and our condolences to Cristiano Ronaldo and uh, his partner and, and and all of their family on the loss of their little boy. But it was contrasted, it has to be said, with the behaviour of the City fans uh, at the FA Cup semi-final at uh, at Wembley on the weekend, where they chanted through the uh, um, the the uh, minutes uh, silence uh, for the the Hill victims on the anniversary. So uh, whilst we uh, we praise fans on the one hand, um, the the disgraceful behaviour at Wembley uh, was uh, was an unfortunate contrast. Oh, uh, uh, certainly, uh, certainly. So yeah, the best of I say the. Our best feelings to, to to Ronaldo and and his family, and we'll, we'll we'll keep an eye on as and when he returns. Uh, just a couple of things left on my sheet. We're having an extended uh, stoppage time uh, as usual, gents. I wanted briefly. I don't think we've spoken since uh, Sean Dyche uh, was axed at Burnley with eight games to go. Uh, Ten years or so as manager, he was the longest running manager. In the Premier League, he oversaw two promotions in that time. He got Burnley into Europe uh, at one point, and with eight games to go, they've uh, decided to give him the flick. And with no real replacement lined up, that's been left to sort of legendary club man Ben Mee and some backroom staff to see if they can, you know, conjure up probably three to four wins that they're going to need in order to try and stay in the Premier League and, and edge, I just suppose the expectations have changed at Burnley. They have new American owners now. They bought Burnley because they wanted to see it as a going Premier League concern. But um, 
did you think this was the right time to be to be sacking your manager? Well, he's had such a fantastic run, hasn't he? I mean, when you say Burn, Burnley, Sean Dyche's um, stoicism and his, uh, um, you know, just his endless uh, energy to keep fighting has kept that club in the Premier League uh, single-handedly, hasn't it? It's been his, uh, the culture that he set. So it's a big decision to part ways with someone like that, but he's been there such a long time. So yeah, look, um, they are, they do um, have a five point gap to breach to Everton. Um, Leeds United um, is eight points ahead of them. They've got a game in hand on Leeds. So um, it, it could be a five point gap to Leeds. They're the two clubs you would think they've got to have in their sights to um, see if they can get there. Uh, you know, history's against them on this one. But Everton, to me, look very, very shaky. Um, you know, they, they had a very lucky draw um, just in the last match. So time will tell. But, um, yeah, I, I mean, if you're going to put, replace a coach to try and get a, a bounce out of your playing group in a relegation fight, now's probably the time to do it. I looked at I looked at the list. Uh, you know, the bookies always put out their list, which is usually just a copy and paste job from from the last time. But it was a pretty miserable list of potential managers. Sam Allardyce, of of course, was there. Why why wouldn't he be? But then you had Alan Pardew, had Claudio Ranieri. You know, just not the sort of man you would try and bring in with eight games to go. And Bielsa, of some reason as well. I mean, a guy that you know needs lots of time to, to to work on a squad so I don't know where the bookies get these get these from there was one wag on Twitter that said the ideal person to save Burnley from this uh relegation scrap was Sean Dyche he was the ideal appointment so um yeah it's just it's just one of those things I, I don't think uh, uh, Sean Dyche will be unemployed for very long whether he takes uh, a Premier League job or a, a top championship job um I fully expect him to re-emerge and you look after 10 years it's probably not bad for him to have a break you know he's extracted everything he can out of that out of that squad um just wanted to cover one more thing before we go Jen so don't talk about women's football a lot um I try where I can but I just don't have the information or the knowledge on it sometimes but something did jump out at me this week which was the the women's European championship and I wanted to get Edge's view on on this one um They've announced the grounds that the games are going to be played in. The final is going to be at Wembley. That's been sold out. Uh, England's three group games have been sold out. This is great news. Old Trafford is being used as a venue, as have uh, a, a, a range of non-traditional sort of championship sometimes level, um, but, but very decent grounds as well. But the Iceland women have been complaining because they're playing games at Manchester City's training ground uh this is a 7000 seater yeah state of the art training facility 4000 people will um will, will be in for those games and they don't think that they're being treated very fairly and it's a bit disrespectful uh, very quickly Ed, do you think that this is disrespectful and that even if you know the the ladies might be paying in some empty stadiums uh that they've got they've got the right to to play in some of these big venues or is this fair enough? This is an astonishing decision by the organisers. It's just, I'm just flabbergasted because, um, you know, in 2019 I went to the FIFA Women's World Cup and every stadium was packed. It is a, um, European Championships is a great event and I'm just I'm just shocked that they would do that. Um, 
you know, there's there is support for women's football, and you know, I just don't understand why they can't um, predict there's going to be, um, you know, communities come and come and um, you know, enjoy these games, um, migrant communities in England as well as uh, as well as club communities. I'm just I'm shocked. It is a short sighted um, and very puzzling decision, Derek. Yeah, I, I I completely completely agree, and uh, you like it's just good to hear that some of those other grounds will be full though. So, I'm sure this this podcast will keep an eye on it and, and increase our coverage when the time comes. Rob, I think we're going to have to start calling this segment extra time, not stoppage time, because we've nearly run to half an hour. I hope the listeners found that that all entertaining though. I felt like we covered some pretty big topics. Welcome back, mate. It's it's good to see. I know uh, we will uh, we will have. Uh... A little bit more Euro content next week um, as we get to the sharp end of the Premier League season. Yeah, looking forward to it. There's, uh, there's uh, everything to play for. Absolutely, Edge. You have a good week, my friend. Thank you, Rob. Um, look forward to uh, what's ahead this weekend. Uh, wherever you're listening to us, hope you get out to a football game and support your club or your local community uh, and uh, enjoy football in these times. Absolutely, and Willem's already headed off. Well done, Willem. And uh, Damo, Damien Tardio, uh, the guy behind the scenes who uh, who makes us sound good and uh, and gets the uh, the program uh, dropped into your uh, podcatchers as quick as we possibly can after the show. Thanks again for listening to us. Please subscribe to Box to Box wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and give us a like on Facebook. And make sure you join us next week when we go from one end of the pitch to the other in the world game.